Welcome to Appointed. So as we are um, celebrating doesn't seem to be quite the right word, but as we're recognizing the importance of the contributions of so many African Canadians historically, but also currently, um, as we recognize Black History Month in this country, uh, it's, we're also in the midst of discussions about medical assistance in dying and changes, a uh, proposed amendment the government is making to the uh, suicide provisions of the Criminal Code of Canada to allow for an, a new non-culpable form of assisting people to die and basically a what would otherwise have been considered a homicide to now be considered non-culpable where it's deemed to be assisting someone to die who who is quote-unquote choosing to die and during our hearings um, I had the privilege and responsibility I have to say of hearing and the testimony and being bearing witness to the testimony of our amazing guest today Sarah Jama was um, a witness before the committee. She is one of the co-founders of the Disability Justice Network of Ontario. And she has worked, uh, it, it works in this area, but also has contributed incredibly to discussions around everything from medical racism and um, racism in policing to racism in terms of the application or more to the point, the lack of uh, access to services for people with disabilities, particularly when they're poor, particularly when they're racialized. So I want to um, thank you very much, Sarah, for joining us. And uh, thank you also for your incredible testimony. And uh, I'd like to hear a bit about why you formed the organization you did, why you co-founded it, and what the work is of your organization, as well as then, and if you want to then move right into uh, your concerns about the current current. Um, proposed changes in Bill C-7 to the um, suicide provisions of the criminal code. Awesome, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me today. The Disability Justice Network of Ontario was an organization founded in 2018, funded by the Youth Opportunities Fund under the Ontario Trillium Foundation. And my friends and I got together while still students to ask the question, why is it that disabled people are left out of a lot of conversations who are racialized? Um, my friends were doing work in different sectors around violence against women. I was doing work around disability justice on campus, but there wasn't a lot of space to talk about intersecting issues of racism and ableism, even though the histories of these two issues have been connected. Ableism and Satanism and racism have been connected since colonization. This idea that you know, Black people were seen as less than because of their bodies in the same way that disabled people are seen as less than because of their bodies. Um, and I think about when I talk about these intersections about how in during the civil rights movements, a lot of the people who were freedom seekers were labeled as having uh, drapedomania or this, this illness as wanting to free, be free from their masters was labeled as an illness. And that was the name of it. And also civil rights leaders were given labels of like schizophrenia and pathologized for wanting to imagine a new world. And I don't think these two histories and struggles can ever be 
disconnected. And so we founded the Disability Justice Network of Ontario to be able to come into these spaces with this lens, but also to teach younger disabled people um, how to ask questions about where do you go when the systems in place don't work for you? What do you do? A lot of disabled people, especially in your youth, are told that you're a burden on the state implicitly and explicitly. Um, and so we're not taught to ask for change. We're taught to ask for help. We're taught if you don't get accommodations in school or outside of school, you can go to XYZ service, but you're not taught about what to do when the services don't work for you. And so we have a youth action council where we teach about theory of change, how to pick an issue that you care about and how to see an outcome or an end result. We also have a research committee that's run by the members of the Youth Council, where we got a $20,000 grant in partnership with McMaster University to look into data as it impacts young people with disabilities in Hamilton, because Hamilton has the largest density of people with disabilities in the province. And then we have an education community that focuses on putting out workshops around intersecting issues like disability justice and climate justice. Um, how are those issues connected? Race and disability, and a lot of the ways in which disabled people are left out of progressive conversations that need to be centered. Because I fully don't believe that change will ever be possible unless the people who are most disposed of in our societies, which tend to be racialized people, but also disabled people who cannot be seen as valued under a capitalist system because they don't work. They don't produce value for the our, you know, our society in terms of employment um, and and all the things our governments care about in terms of being able to increase our GDP. Like a lot of disabled people can't work and that's okay. And so we're, we're, we're focused on building spaces for young people to critically ask these questions, um, do local campaigns around change, but also we've gotten involved in other campaigns. Um, we've helped disabled people in our city get to the polls to vote. Um, our youth council launched a snow removal campaign to talk about the ways in which they would get stuck every single winter in wheelchairs because um, our local municipalities don't see a need to shovel snow in the winter, even though they shovel the roads. And so there's an inequity there, right? Um, I'm rambling, but essentially our organization tries to teach people that disability justice is inherently political. Yeah, and it it's amazing. In a Hill Times article that uh, was published on uh, February 3rd, I thought it was incredibly striking that you talk all of also in, in, a, in addition to the fact that the highest density of people with disabilities is in some of the communities where the highest rates of economic insecurity and poverty exist, uh, homelessness, and also where people are uh, becoming disabled because of the impact of their uh, the living circumstances, and you mentioned people losing toes and fingers from sleeping in the cold. And you also highlight that in this moment when the government has brought in some very excellent financial supports for uh, over this past year for people who are, um, who are struggling, they brought it in for essentially mostly able-bodied Canadians who are already working, and that this has underscored the the reality that people forced uh, to live in poverty because of disability, because of other circumstances who rely on social assistance have been left to languish without any of those kinds of supports. And then add to that the fact that um, Bill C-7 has been introduced. And I think it's interesting, many of the groups who uh, came to raise concerns, the disability groups who came to raise concerns about Bill C-7 were not 
opposed to medical assistance in dying. That wasn't the issue. The issue is essentially that people have not been provided with the options that allow them to live in ways and be part of the community first and foremost. And that the now the default option seems to be where there are no other options except living in uh, long-term care facilities where we know the uh, incredibly, most of them are for profit, uh, incredibly high mortality rates, transmission and mortality rates, uh, and very few supports in place that the option now being provided first, you know, not quite first and foremost, but certainly I'm sure it feels that way for many people is this idea that medical assistance and dying will be an option. And I don't know if you want to expand more on that, particularly in this moment when we've also had the, the health pandemic, the economic uh, realities of what happens for people in Canada, as well as the pandemic of racism that uh, was, many of us knew was happening, but was really exposed. And so you see, government leaders taking a knee in support of uh, Black Lives Matter. Uh, but many people have said to me, but where is the action? Um, you know, we, we need, in order for things to really move, we need to disrupt the spaces of white and ableist uh, supremacy. And, and so uh, you mentioned, you know, clearing highways so the cars can get through, but not clearing sidewalks so that wheelchairs can pass. And, uh, so I want I wanted to invite you to any other comments or concerns you have. It was an incredibly impactful piece. Your testimony was impactful before the legal committee on Bill C-7, but also your um, the article you contributed to the Hill Times, I think, uh, was read and experienced uh, profoundly by many people. Thank you so much for saying that. Yeah, we do a lot of incumbent support in Hamilton, but it's because a lot of the people who are living in tents have lived in on social assistance and been evicted because of living on social assistance because it's not enough money to pay rent and buy food. And so a lot of the people who are houseless right now, who um, police keep evicting and the municipality keep evicting from public spaces are disabled people who are literally losing fingers and toes. And I worry about uh, these people right? The working class, the people who feel like they have nowhere else to go because they're disabled and can't work um, and have no family supports or who are isolated or dealing with addictions, being able to qualify for MAID. And it's even more worrisome to hear the introduction of an amendment of a sunset clause that would allow um, people with psychiatric disabilities to apply to die. It's, it's very alarming to me. I think about DeAndre Campbell um, out in Brampton who literally had um, a routine of calling hospital for help whenever he was in crisis, calling police for help whenever he was in crisis, it was known. And there were specific officers who, who knew him and would support him at times. But there was a rookie officer who, according to his family, uh, was called in by DeAndre for support um, and then ended up killing DeAndre on the spot because of his fear, because of his biases, because of racism. And DeAndre Campbell had schizophrenia and needed help, right? And so I think about the ways in which um, our systems, whether it's policing or our medical systems, don't have the nuances or the capacity to deal with racism, right? And policing has been built to be racist. And in a lot of ways, our medical professions, although we don't like to talk about it, 
have been built to perpetuate racism too. I'm thinking about like the Alberta Sterilization Act where women with disabilities and indigenous women were both specified to be sterilized against their will, knowledge and consent and how sterilization is still going on. I'm thinking about Joyce Echequan, the indigenous woman who literally recorded um, the racist remarks from doctors and nurses. Like, and I've heard these things too. Not everybody has the ability to record it, right? And not everybody mm-hmm. is harmed in the same ways or ends up dead but it's 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 not out of the blue right people deal with this every single day i avoid doctors and i'm a disabled person and there's there's a reason for that it's not coming out of uh you know it's not coming out of a random hesitancy it's coming from a place of like yeah there's no room to talk about uh racism in the medical field and what coercion means how when i was 17 and i refused a surgery that was for aesthetic purposes for CP because I wanted to graduate on time um, and I had already did the surgery when I was 13 and they wanted me to repeat it when I said no the doctors looked at my mom like she was out her mind for supporting me right and and, and it's these mm-hmm. situations that teach you again and again that you don't have autonomy over your body and then so I think about the people who come into disability who are new to the disability community who don't have that framework of thinking of like hey it's not me that's the problem it's our systems that's the mm-hmm. issue we're taught to internalize ableism it's the most dangerous thing about um ableism is how internalized people um can how, how much it can be internalized. And I think if we don't give people the time to address and the resources and supports, it can be very detrimental. And you were right when you said most of us are not against me. I'm, for, I'm pro-choice. I believe in pro-choice with abortion in the same way I believe in the choice to die. However, this is not about giving people who want to be able to control things in their life full control. There's no control for people who have been like extremely marginalized um, by our societies who are living in deep poverty. They don't have control over how they die. The systems are killing them. And so for us to be elevating the voices of like the Nicole Gladues and upper middle class white people who say in their testimony that they want to be able to die with a champagne glass in their hand where other people are applying because they don't have food to eat, it's bizarre to me and it's appalling and it's a shameful moment of our Canadian history. Right. Well, another article in the same um the same edition of the Hill Times was by Erica uh, Eiffel. I hope I'm pronouncing her last name correctly. And she said, she quoted Malcolm X and the quote was, the white man will try to satisfy symbolic victories. Uh, it will, will try to satisfy us with symbolic victories rather than economic equity and real justice. Mm. Um, and that that is insulting and exhausting. And, you know, I think of you, I think of her, I think of, so many others, black people working and propping up the society, but whose voices are too often ignored. And uh, it must feel like you're essentially rendered insignificant when it comes to the recognition of policy and legislation. And uh, what are the challenges you would put to me uh, uh, as a Senator, as well as my other colleagues in the Senate chamber, as well as members of parliament as we go forward, especially this month, as we're supposed to be uh, talking about real change, real action to address inequality, in particular racial inequality, but of course, economic and um, able, economic inequality and ableism are also uh, part of the discussions we need to have. What would right. you say to us if you if you could tell us what to do? You can tell us. You can tell me what to do. What would you say we should be doing right now? 
before we move forward. You need to center the voices of people who don't look like you and sound like you when we're talking about the impacts of policy that can literally kill people. There weren't enough black people that delegated. I think I was maybe the only one that I saw this round. Mm-hmm. Uh, like the, There hasn't been the work done um, from our MPs or from Senate to reach out to actual community members who will be impacted who are never in these spaces because these spaces are white and they're hard to get into unless you know somebody to explain the process. It's, it's mm-hmm. very confusing. And so I think the first thing I would say is like reach out to people who don't look or, and sound like you. And number two, I would say it's your responsibility to get rid of track two, right? Get rid of this idea that uh, until there's research in, into the potential impacts, until more voices are at the table, if indigenous and black communities, if working class communities have come and said, this is dangerous, get rid of the piece of this legislation that's opening it up specifically to disabled people before that research is done. It's not enough to pass something and then say, we're going to research how many people die from it. If even one or two people are coerced into dying through MAID, then we have failed as a government because it costs less than $100 to provide made for a single person um and yet we don't have free pharmacare and all the other things people with disabilities need to survive so i would say vote this down until there's at least more research done into the impacts of this so we're not repeating the mistakes of the white ancestors of canada who consistently perpetuated eugenics like this is a cycle that's repeating and so my advice to everybody is to like the progressive thing to do the right thing to do is to vote down um this amendment. Too many progressives are getting stuck in this idea of autonomy and choice without realizing how centered around whiteness autonomy and choice actually is and how it's centered around class. A lot of people do not have choice. So I would say as somebody who's been involved in anti-racism work, as somebody who's literally a member of Black Lives Matter Toronto, I would say like it's imperative that this gets voted down. Thank you very much, Sarah. And thank you for all of your work with the Disability Justice Network of Ontario. Uh, with the Hamilton Center for Civic Inclusion and for your ongoing um, brilliant, brave and inspirational advocacy. And thank you very much for joining us. And I hope that we can rise to the occasion to to um, work in coalition and certainly um, in alliance with you and your, your colleagues. Thank you for having me.